is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Howard Husick. Howard is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he focuses on urban housing policy. He's been published you know, basically everywhere, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes. He's the author of several books, including his most recent one, The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It which centers around the problems with housing, which, of course, we're going to get into today. We're going to focus on one of the you know, biggest issues, I think, in today's age, particularly around millennials and you know, younger generations, Gen Z, is uh, this issue of housing affordability, uh, which seems to have been actually exacerbated by the pandemic. I'm not sure a lot of people saw that coming beforehand. Howard, thanks so much for being with me. Hey, thanks for having me, Ashton. I appreciate it. So I'll start off here. I'm sure you're familiar with with the data, and you, you'll see charts to this effect where you see like wages since like 1970s adjusted for inflation, median median wage that is, and it's essentially like flatlined. And then you'll see, or it's barely grown. And then you'll see like median housing prices, and it's gone up, you know, significant amounts of percent, double digit percents. And large part of that is due to the exorbitant increase in housing prices, particularly in these major metro areas. Uh, That same chart, they did one of LA, and it was like 400% increase in median home price in LA since the 70s, adjusted for inflation, whereas the median wage growth kind of stagnated. And so you're not based in LA, but I'm sure you're familiar with this trend. It's in Boston, it's in San Francisco, it's in New York, it's in a lot of these places. And it's interesting because we're, well, it's it's troubling. It's one of the biggest issues that we face today in, in society. And... It's happening at a time when so much of our other products are deflationary. Homes, I mean, sorry, TVs are way cheaper, right? You can buy a laptop for a fraction of the price it used to cost 20 years ago. So much of our lives are deflationary. And housing exorbitantly increased relative to, say, my parents' generation, right? And the other exceptions would probably be like healthcare and education, which, you know, it seems to be a connection there. I wonder what it is. Uh, <laughs> but um, what do you think are the biggest problems in our housing policy that are creating negative impacts in society, particularly with, with unaffordability in housing and maybe other negative consequences? Well, I hate to be simplistic, but it is supply and demand. Fundamentally, underlying all this is supply and demand. So if you look at um, San Francisco or Boston, which are both off the charts in terms of the kind of increases you've been talking about, uh, you've got restrictive zoning that is a noose around new construction. And so it's been great for, uh, you talked about your parents' generation, I guess I am your parents' generation, and we baby boomers have sat on our gains, restricted supply by being not my backyard types, watched our home values gone up, cashed out our home equity, and we're fat and happy. So uh, I don't know if we wanna call that generational theft along with so much else, but it's not unrelated to that. And we are seeing places where supply is permitted. Uh, Texas is a great example where prices are lower and people are migrating because housing prices are up everywhere, but they're not as up everywhere. Zoning, obviously, is a major component of this. What What is a good zoning policy? Is there Should there be no zoning? Should there be... Limited mass, like what, how, how do you conceive of a good zoning policy that doesn't create these problems? Who's doing it right, for example? Which, which places? Yeah. Well, 
we used to do it right. That's a big theme of my book, Poor Side of Town. We actually had the winning formula in this country, and it was to permit uh, a, what I call a, a ladder of housing types. So when I bought a house, it was hard for me to buy a house, but I bought a two-family house, and I rented out the other side. Absolutely mm -hmm. crucial for my family. Uh, that used to be a normal thing to do. But if you look at the post-war suburbs, San Jose is a great example, right? Uh, the Valley in LA. It's, it's a sea of single-family houses on relatively large lots, right? So we eliminated two families. We eliminated three families. We eliminated attached houses. All of those are key to affordability, and we need zoning codes that permit them again. And that's very rare. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, I think a lot of people think when you when you talk about eliminating single family zoning, they think like giant apartment buildings next to a uh, you know, single right. family home, but it could just be what you said, like duplexes and triplexes, etc. Right. And, and that that's, and it can be one block with duplexes and the next block with single family homes. So in Durham, North Carolina, uh, they're right now having a, a small home movement that is being uh, facilitated by what they call upzoning. They got the neighbors in, the, in these really quite desirable neighborhoods to buy into it because they weren't building giant apartment blocks. They right, were right. building accessory dwelling units, you know, small little granny flats, two families, duplexes. This is the kind of thing that people will accept. This is our big problem in this country. We've got to figure out a way to get communities to accept more housing. It's one thing for me to say, you guys are so awful. You're not letting more housing be built and, and, and Ashton and his buddies are getting locked out. That just hasn't cut it with people. We've mm -hmm. got to convince them that actually this is not going to ruin your neighborhood. Over time, it'll bring in newcomers that might buy your houses eventually. It's in your interest. And this is a struggle that's going to have to be waged community by community by community, planning board by planning board. What do you make of this? Um, you seem to critique some of these like affordable housing policies that some of these cities are doing. Can you talk a little bit about that, what the problem is? Well, that's a deep problem. Uh, anybody who's familiar with public housing knows it's been one of the, the great failures of American uh, policy of any kind. And uh, how did we do that? How did we build mm -hmm. 33 high-rise buildings in St. Louis and less than 20 years later, the 50th anniversary of this is coming up on March 18th. We had to blow them up, literally. Wow. They were so bad that we blew up the Pruitt Igo housing project, which had won architectural awards. What? And then 20 years later, we imploded them. Everybody should look this up on the web. Implosion, Pruitt Igo, some of the most dramatic pictures, you know, this side of, dare I say, it, Kia. Uh, but it looks like that. Uh, and the reason is, a group of housing reformers starting in the 1920s and 30s got it into their heads that the private market was always going to fail certainly poor people, but even working class people, and that the government would have to step in and build, own, and operate apartment blocks. And it did that, and it has just not worked out well. The New York City Housing Authority, for instance, which is the largest housing authority in the country, one of the largest in the world, 180,000 apartments. It's bigger than a lot of cities. 
has been called the biggest slumlord in the city. Every day on the mm-hmm. news here, you got people with no heat in the middle of winter. It's cold in New York. Oh my God! So we have we, we've just failed, and in terms of government policies, we've just been chasing our tail ever since, looking for some magic formula where we're going to provide housing that's newer, modern, and better than people could actually afford, rather than mm-hmm. figuring out how can we build something that they can't afford. Right. And so with the problem with these housing projects, and I'm a l- little bit not that familiar with them other than just reading about them because I, I don't know if that was much of a thing in L.A. I, the, the picture in my mind is always like the New York ones or the Baltimore ones. Chicago. Um, yeah, Chicago. And so the problem was essentially that these people live in these places. They're means tested so they can never – if they, they're almost incentivized not to make more money because then they lose their, their housing projects. And then – they have no interest or no reason really to maintain them or to, uh, you know, keep them in good shape because they don't own it and they can never own it and they can't build equity from these things, right? Is that is that sort of what causes these like horrible conditions in these projects? Yeah, that that that's those are big parts of it. First of all, they had this crazy idea that the rents were going to help maintain the buildings; they're going to be enough. And hmm. as soon as people had the chance to leave these places, they did, leaving only the poorest right. people. Their rents were pegged at. 30% of their income, so there's not much rent, and the places just start to fall apart, and they have. But you've put your finger on one of the most important deleterious effects of all of our affordable housing projects. We've got 3 million public housing uh, projects, uh, apartments in this country, 3,000 public housing authorities, and we've got almost twice that many units where people get these housing vouchers where they go and rent in private apartments, but all of them, just as you say, the more money you earn, the more your rent goes up. I, I just want listeners to take that in. Could you imagine signing a lease or entering into a mortgage that said, when you earn more money, your monthly payment goes up? But that's what we do for the poorest people in the country. Yeah. So it's bad social policy, bad housing policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a uh, old Charlie Munger quote about show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome, right? So when you create yeah. bad incentives, you're going to get bad outcomes. Well, I was going to say, I wanted to, to underscore another thing you said, which was those who are, who are living in these subsidized rental units, they got no incentive to leave, no incentive to earn more money, and they can't build equity. Nobody owns anything in a public housing project except the government. And the worst thing about it is, and this is a big theme of, of, of my book, then these projects were built, they weren't just you know empty fields where they built them. There were real neighborhoods that were torn down, so-called slums. But when you dig into who was actually living in those slums, quote unquote slums, there were a lot of owner-occupied homes and a lot of homes where there were two or three units along with the owner. These were real places that were, many of them were thriving. They had civil society institutions, churches, self-help groups, all wiped out. And so we wonder, you know, why specifically African-Americans are so behind the eight ball. They moved to the cities just as public housing was at its apex. So they were particularly disadvantaged by this bad public policy. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, and we know that home equity is a large part of the average American's wealth. So if you're not being able to build that, then then there you go. That's going to make a significant difference in your wealth gap. It wasn't something they did right. wrong. It happened to them. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, by the way, it's quick aside to remind me of this, with what Singapore does? Because they have an interesting system, but they give it, they give the people the homes after a while so that they can sell it themselves, right? So they have a kind of like a public housing thing, but then after a while you own the home so then you can have equity in it? Yeah, I've actually been to Singapore and seen the HDB Flats, Housing Development Board. And um, Singapore, it's superficially attractive. So you've got giant apartment mm-hmm. blocks. They own right. them from the beginning. The, the government oh, okay. is construction, but they own them. They, there's a there's a buy and sell market. Uh, they have a few strange little rules, like uh, every apartment block has to have one floor set aside for people of Indian descent because they don't want mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they don't want ethnic concentration. They're worried about ethnic concentration. Right. So they, yeah. it, it's a very technocratic, uh, um, socially engineered society. What makes Singapore really different than the United States is this. It's right next to Malaysia, which is a really big country. It would be a suburb. It's like the South San Francisco is to San Francisco or, uh, you know, maybe San Diego to Los Angeles, closer in even than that. But you can't commute from Malaysia. It's a foreign country. So you got no suburbs Mm -hmm. in Singapore. The whole land supply is so constrained that you have a very mm-hmm. artificial situation. Is it better that there's a market for the uh, for these government subsidies? Yeah, it's better, but it's not a model for us. What I would rather do, and I'm working on this, is I, I think we ought to buy out all the public housing residents. Say, look, we did wrong. You lived here for 20 years, here's 100 grand. That's what the equity you might've developed. We're gonna sell the land and we're going to get a windfall in New York. There, there are projects in prime land on the Brooklyn and waterfront. Right, They're right. worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Cash them out, pay people. They'll move to cheaper quarters, and the government will get out of the business. Makes a lot of sense. I think so. Yeah, I, I can't see anybody opposing that. There'll be protests, but yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense because I think people don't like living an institutionalized life. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's like. It, it's it, it it's. They got no streets. They got no stores. They got big, empty, grassy areas. Very strange places to live. What What do you mean they have no streets? Yeah, well, th- th- they were the ideal of the modernist vision of housing, started by the Swiss architect, Swiss French architect Le Corbusier, who. These architects, they weren't just designing affordable housing. They were thought they were designing a better way for human beings to live and that they knew the way that would be. And that would be mm-hmm. a city without streets. They were going to isolate commercial uses and residential uses, industrial uses, even small industrial uses, instead have towers in the park. That's what was built. Mm-hmm. Big open campuses, and there were going to be places where people would frolic in the grass, and it would be so pastoral. But of course, they became shooting galleries, and that's what right. they are today. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I can visualize it. Right. Yeah. Thanks. The wire. I can visualize it now. It's the wire. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the wire. Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
so the other thing people often talk about, particularly on the left, is the rent control. That's kind of seen as a a solution these days. And it sounds nice in theory, and it sounds even to me it sounds lovely. Um, and if you don't think about the unintended consequences, it sounds like a, like a nice nice thing. But what's what's the problem with rent control? Well, my friend Ed Glazer at Harvard has said it's the, the surest way to to cause a city to decline. So uh, let me count the ways in which rent control, or as we call it here in New York, rent stabilization, is a bad idea. So New York has just under a million what we call rent-stabilized, but yeah, rent-controlled apartments. Wow. A million. A million. A million. Okay. What that does, it's a kind of a vast game of musical chairs. People want, they run around and run around, and then they find a rent-controlled apartment, and they stay there. So the turnover in New York, people think if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Actually, for newcomers, it's really hard to find a place to put your head down in New York because you've got lots of people. It has the lowest turnover of the 10 largest metros in the United States. New York is not churning. It's frozen because people get this good deal. They have empty bedrooms, more room than they need. But why should they move out? Right. The rent never goes up. It's been the, the rent increase, even as taxes have gone up, oil has gone up. The rent increase the last several years, granted by the Rent Stabilization Board in New York, has been zero. So that really? leads you to the other wow. problem. That leads you to the other problem with rent control, which is over time, if you can't be compensated as the owner for capital investments, you have the opposite of gentrification. You have what I call shabbification. The city mm -hmm. gets shabbier and shabbier and shabbier. And that's what happens. So you have a lucky few hit the lottery. They get a great apartment. Those on the outside, left standing. And meanwhile, everything gets shabbier and shabbier. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the things, too, where we, you talk about a uh... – a war on the younger generations or hurting younger generations. Like the people who benefit most from this are like elderly people who've been living there for like 30, 40 years. And if you want to move to New York city to pursue your dream or whatever it is, uh, you know, good luck finding an apartment. Meanwhile, like you have, you'll have like two 70 year olds who are living in like a four bedroom place or a three bedroom place. They don't need it anymore, but they're not going to move because why should they? And also, you know, they're going to have trouble finding a place if they move. Right. Right. And, and they've not, owned anything all those years so it's not like they can mm -hmm. cash out their equity and move to the sun belt and retire right they, they they've been lured into this promised land of your rent's going to be cheap forever but meanwhile it's not doing you any good in terms of accumulating wealth unless maybe they've been saving a lot of money from not paying their the, the higher rent but uh, by the way that's the other sticking point about uh, rent control you don't have to be a low-income person to get a rent-controlled apartment. Think about your incentive as if you're a landlord. Do I want to rent to a single mother with three children? Well, actually, no. I want to rent to one designer, one Google employee who's going to pay the rent because I get the same rent no matter who I rent to. Why <laughs> would I possibly rent to a low-income household? I'd be foolish to do that. Right. So it, it's yeah. a middle-class benefit program.
Right. Yeah. And that's a good point. Or, or like, yeah, would you rent to that single mother with three kids, you know, who's, who's working at a, you know, job that, you know, isn't exactly terribly secure, right? It's not a, a great white collar job or two college kids or, you know, grad school students who managed to find that place who are, you know, working on their PhD, whatever it is. And, and you know that they're going to be making money. So, right. Uh, much less of a risk of them not paying the rent. Yeah, exactly. If I can only get a hundred dollars, I want to make sure I get the hundred. Right. Right. Yeah. And also the, it disincentivizes new places from being built. So, so we have, we have a couple of different phenomena, right? So we have, let's, let's go with California and New York is kind of the same thing, but you have, uh, there's some rent control here as well. Um, there is. And so the places that are often will be built, will be sort of like luxurious places. That's where more of the capital will flow to because it's so hard to meet these regulations and all these requirements. And then you have the rent control and all that, right? Is that a phenomenon as well? Oh yeah, Here, here's my favorite new example. So as you know, California just passed a really interesting piece of new legislation called Senate Bill 8, which authorized people to subdivide their lots, overrode right. local zoning, people can subdivide their lots, build smaller homes on those lots and accessory dwelling units. So accessory dwelling units sounds great. I build a little small garage-like unit next door. Maybe I move in there and I rent out the big house to you and everybody's happy. But did you know that to build an ADU, accessory dwelling unit in California, it has to have solar as its source of electricity? I didn't know that. buy those solar. You did or didn't? No, I did not know that. So e- e- even if it's a garage conversion or it's a separate ADU, I feel like separate it's ADU. probably separate ADU, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, so that, that falls under the new construction one. Yeah. And, and so solar panels are expensive, right? Right. So what people are actually doing, I'm told, I, I just heard a talk by a researcher from the University of California, San Diego about this. And she says, people aren't even looking to rent these out. They're not even increasing the housing supply. They see it as a way of increasing the effective size of their own home. So they'll be worth more mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cost more. They, they, they can't make enough from the rent to justify the expense of building it. So they're just seeing it as an investment. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, that, is, that is insane. I also heard I had uh, Lee Ohanian on my show a couple of weeks ago, and we spoke about it. And he told me that in order to take advantage of the ADU thing, if you want to build, say, like a, if you actually want to go stuff further, if you want to build like a, a duplex, so you're allowed to subdivide into multiple lots, but you have to own that land outright. So there can't be a mortgage on it. Otherwise, you have to negotiate with a bank and see if they let you do it, which they may or may not. But that's, that was, I mean, how many people own, own their own lands when, when, you know, homes are like an average of a million dollars? Yeah. Uh, and not only that, but there's some fine print in that law that says uh, something on the – they're not subject to the Draconian Environmental Quality Act, which has stifled most construction oh, yeah. in California. Mm-hmm. But they do have this little clause in there. They can't cause a neighborhood health hazard or mm-hmm. environmental problem. I don't remember the exact language. But right. What's going to happen yeah. is wealthy neighborhoods are going to litigate this. You'll see mm-hmm. subdivisions in Compton and – that's how it'll play out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's exactly how it'll play out. Yeah. Probably not so much in uh, 
in Pasadena where, where you'll have some uh, litigation for sure. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with all these things. So l- let's talk about it for a second because that reminds me of, of Airbnbs and short-term rentals and all that. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people are, are going to want to make these things into Airbnb and short-term rentals. Right now, the, the rule in LA is that it has to be owner-occupied now in order to be on Airbnb or do a short-term rental under 30 days. How do you think that cities should deal with that because it is a it is a it's a weird one because it kind of it's two competing values on the one hand it's your property you should be able to do whatever you want on the other hand no one wants to live next to a hotel where you know you're attracting drunk 20 something year olds who are coming there for the weekend they don't give a shit they're going to make noise and party and all that they'll be out in a couple days and like that's not what you signed up for so how how would how should cities deal with that well i think on the most basic level, I'm a fan of Airbnb and Home Away. That's another one. Everybody talks Airbnb. There are a few operators in this space, right. as people call it. Uh, but um, it, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of the, the bad old days that were actually good in housing. And one of the things that made the bad old days actually good, pre-zoning uh, and, and pre a lot of other things, was the fact that people had the, the capacity to take in lodgers. It was really mm. common for people, especially lower-income people, to take in lodgers. So the Lower East Side of New York, people were saving money to move up and out. They were taking in lodgers. And it was a very common thing, just like people had a rental unit and they lived upstairs or downstairs. So it was, there was this whole textured spectrum of housing types and taking in a lodger was one of them. So Airbnb is kind of a new version of that. You're using your the home that you already control as a way to get additional income by taking somebody in. Now, uh, if, if you have rowdy people and there's a, a steady stream of partiers and it's a quiet neighborhood, that's a problem for sure. I think the way to deal with that there's no perfect way, because I don't think we should prohibit the Airbnbs. I don't think there's any perfect way. But I think that has to be covered by nuisance laws. So you need law enforcement that will be responsive. So when people call and say there's a party going on, they're going to get right over there, because that's a public nuisance. So we have to enforce public nuisance laws. And I think it's an Airbnb's interest to use their reputational scoring to say, I'm sorry, you're you're not allowed to rent anymore because we got three nuisance complaints about you. So I, I think there are ways to square that circle without saying no Airbnb. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's actually a good point. There's a, um, I don't know if you heard about this, but there is a new, it came out on the news just yesterday or the day before, where the LA City Council is currently considering passing these ordinances which would forbid landlords from being able to examine a applicant's criminal history his uh, prior evictions his uh, his or her prior evictions uh, as well as credit score credit score yeah as well as credit score is that I don't know if you ever heard any any other city incorporate that it is that possible that you can you can prohibit that kind of stuff? I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but it's a terrible idea, right? First of all, you know, in terms of of ex-offenders or people who have a criminal history, 
I think ex-offenders is now a, a politically incorrect term. Mm -hmm. People who've been involved with the criminal justice system, you know, they, they deserve a chance to make a clean start at some point, you know? Right. And, and so uh, should their uh, convictions be uh, not public after a certain period of years with good behavior? I agree with that. Whole, that's a whole yeah. different subject, mm -hmm. right? But landlords are not just greedy Daddy Warbucks profiteers. They're actually the front lines of creating safe, socially cohesive communities because they screen people. Screening people is something we should mm -hmm. want to happen. We want to screen people who have good credit histories because that reflects a series of good life decisions. They didn't mm -hmm. get into debt. They saved. Right? We want them to screen people based on, have you ever been arrested? Well, it's worth knowing. Now, should they take that into account and immediately say you can't rent here? Well, no. But it's, it's something they need to know. Have you ever been evicted before? They got to know that. They, they, pretty they, relevant, because yeah. Because it's highly relevant. But it's relevant for creating good neighborhoods because right. it sends a message to people. Keep your act clean. Mm -hmm. And that is good for all the neighbors, that whole building, that whole block. So landlords are actually, you know, think of, at the old single room occupancy hotels, there was a guy at the front desk who said, I'm sorry, you can't come in. You don't live here. He was screening people. That made the place safe. Landlords do that. They serve a socially constructive role. They're not just greedy guys. Mm -hmm. So I think if we take away their tools to screen, we're not only putting at risk the safety of, of the, their individual building, we're sending the wrong message to potential tenants all, all over that mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about doing right. Won't matter. Why do we want to send that message? Right. Yeah, I, th I think the other thing that sort of comes to my mind is, well, if you can't discriminate on those metrics, then somebody might be discriminating on metrics that we really don't want them to discriminate on, right, by making certain stereotypes about people. And that, that's just one of these unintended consequences you see, right? Yeah, it, it just shows you see these, and there's, there's so many examples of this, obviously one being as well, and the New York Times to its credit, just eviscerated places like California and the blue states about how you have these politicians, a lot of them claim to be socialists, the rest are progressives. They have full control over the legislation in this state, as well as uh, you know, a couple others where the housing's really bad. And yet the very people who claim to be for the working class and for the, you know, poor struggling immigrants and just start trying to start out and for young people are creating policies that have enacted so much uh, unaffordability in these communities, made houses so out of reach that these people, the, the ones who they claim to represent, particularly the young, the working class, the struggling families, they're leaving California. And they're going to, you know, evil, greedy capitalist places like Texas, right? So I don't know, and you follow this very closely, right? You, you speak to Congress about these sorts of things. How is, how is it not sort of gotten into their, their head? Because obviously their intentions, I'm not going to disregard their intentions, or I'm sure they do want to help out working class people. I'm sure they do want to help them find homes and all that. 
but they, there hasn't been a substantial movement yet among these these sort of uh, you know, progressive elites to actually do things that are going to fix the problem. So what do you attribute that to? And do you see anything sort of changing on that front? Yeah, that's two good questions. Um, one is they think the private sector is just a bunch of bad actors. So when they see house prices and apartment prices, rents being so high, they just say yeah. that's the greedy private sector. Right, or Putin calls it. The they don't think about the local policies <laughs> underlying it. And so they think, well, that means the government has to fix it. Because that's what government does when the private sector fails. And that means the government has to support affordable housing, which means subsidized housing. Inclusionary zoning will have a certain number of income-linked units in these more expensive units. Right. So we'll 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 intervene in the market. So there's something called the low income housing tax credit. California has a lot of these apartments where there's a subsidy. The detail there's a whole industry of people who figure out how to finance these apartment deals. You know, the average cost in California to build one of these affordable apartments is over four hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. So. How many of them are you going to build? Not too many. Right. right. And then you get in there and your rent is fixed and you have a set of to stay for life and not be upwardly mobile. Bad on all counts. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing I see on the horizon, and it's not a small thing, I think there's green shoots of, around the country. Even, even the ADU law in California is, is something of a green shoot. And part of that law, by the way, is maybe the shopping malls, empty shopping malls might get converted to housing. Mm -hmm. That could be a good. Yep. You're yeah. right. So I, I, I think, I think it's, it's a green shoot in California, even though it's imperfect. But there's also something uh, called the, the small homes movement. And uh, this idea is we just have made the lot requirements too big. So after World War II, the most famous suburb in the country was Levittown outside of New York. Mm -hmm. It was the quintessential post-war suburb. All the veterans moved there. Everybody bought their own homes for the first time. For, for Californians, San Jose is, is, is just like that, except the homes there cost a million dollars. Now, small homes on pretty big lots. Two million, yeah. But Levittown, Levittown yeah. the houses were 750 square feet. Hmm. It's so small. So we have to... The small homes movement, for instance, in Durham, you can build a home on 1,000 square feet. Even with the new law in California, you have to have 1,250 square feet. 1,000 can be enough. Density is the secret to affordability. It's not complicated. The more homes, the more units you build on the same land size, the cheaper it gets. So by hamstringing builders, we've jacked up the prices and the progressives just think it's they're greedy because what what do they do naturally is to build very expensive houses because right it doesn't make sense. They got the money back. Mm -hmm. That's the only way. So we made yep. it impossible for them to get their money back any other way, and we blame them, and then we subsidize expensive new units and we chase our tail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's an absolute mess. The um, what do you make about this? Is something that kind of concerns people, I think, on both sides that you've been hearing a lot about is this new trend of corporations 
purchasing entire neighborhoods. Uh, the Blackstone, which is sort of associated with BlackRock, and this other company, Invitation Homes, which they bought out. They're famous for doing this. So they buy out these, these blocks of homes, and then they rent them out. And in some areas, although it's in terms of the entire country, it's a marginal irrelevant percentage of corporation uh, corporation owned homes. But in some cities and some neighborhoods, I think like Atlanta might be one of them where it's like 25% of the new homes sold were sold to corporations or something to that effect. What do you make of that trend? And is there, should we fear it? And is there anything that can be done about it? Well, not everybody is prepared to own a home. Not everybody can afford to own a home. People are often at stages in their lives where they have to save to own a home. And so the idea of expanding the rental market is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's an option for people who might not have had an option. And we've had people concerned about the absence of rental units for a long time. So this is, to some degree, an answer to that. However, if it's coupled with these con this continued noose on new supply, then that's going to be a bad thing because it will mm -hmm. constrain the 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 opportunity for ownership when people are ready for ownership. Right. So we don't want we don't want rental, no matter who is, is the owner, to constrain new supply. We don't want this to be a zero sum game. That's my big argument. We have to not let this be a zero sum game anymore. Right. And then we won't be looking for new right. villains. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And we should mention, too, with this phenomenon is largely hap happening in the cheaper kinds of places, uh, the cities that are a bit cheaper, not you know, L.A. or San Francisco, where there's no money to be made for these corporations. So that's that's a little bit of the concerning thing for people because it's young families are going to be the ones most affected. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays. I, I hope, you know, that we can just in those areas have enough housing that it won't be an issue. What do you think about the sort of housing trends that have happened since COVID where people are moving to these other cities from the LA's and San Francisco's and York to Austin and Nashville, Miami and Idaho, do you, th you continue to, do you think that will continue? And do you think there are any other sort of housing trends that we should be looking out for uh, in the next few years? Yeah. It, well, I, I, it struck me from the very beginning of COVID that work from home is, is a game changer and nothing I've seen has convinced me otherwise. Uh, I mean, California lost population. That never happened before, ever, in history. That's a big deal. You know, the, the gains in Texas, uh, the fact that you can work from anywhere is just, it gives people options. And it's a major adjustment, not only in lifestyle, but in searching out housing that you can afford. Right? So... You can, you can move to Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is used to be the richest community in the United States, and buy a literal mansion for half a million dollars, half a million dollars. You know, you can't buy a parking space in Manhattan for half a million dollars, right? And in terms of smaller homes in less affluent places, there's all sorts of stuff on offer, and people are going to make choices based on their income, and that's going to help the housing market reset, I think, 
in a way that gets us away from this this trend of everybody who's who can wants to be on the two coasts uh, because this is a, this is a great country and there's a lot of beautiful places and uh, Nashville is great but uh, you know I mean look Cleveland's cold but it's got a great symphony a great art museum and you could buy a great house for three hundred thousand dollars. What's the problem? Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult to wrap your mind around when you come from some of these places. Just like, you know how how cheap it is. I was talking to you before about just going to Austin, and Austin is considered like the most expensive city in Texas, and it's like, wow, you buy this beautiful house for like five six hundred thousand dollars in a nice area with you know it's just, it's it's such a change in mindset. It's like, I didn't know this is possible, uh, but I, I think that that's going to continue to be a trend as well. I think that. Hopefully that alleviates a lot of these issues because, you know, millennials and Gen Z need to be able to build some of that wealth that their parents and grandparents were able to. And housing is one of the best ways to do that and always will be because people need a place to live. Yeah. And even if you're home, you don't want to think of your home only as an investment, even if it isn't to right. appreciate as much. If you have a payment that you can afford, you can save money in other ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you can build wealth in other ways. Uh you know, in 1970, mutual funds were the thing. Now they're pretty big. So there, there are investment opportunities even for, for the average person. There are a lot of great cities in this country to, to discover. Yep, you know, absolutely. St. Louis, beautiful old homes, you know, uh, too much vacant land, unfortunately, but they, they got to get there. We need governments who are going to do stuff too in a lot of these places and that and public safety mm -hmm. comes first, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And obviously... As you mentioned, it's it's only just the appreciation aspect, but you know, selling down somewhere, building roots somewhere, that makes communities great, and you know, communities make good, a good state, and a good state makes for for a good country. So you know, it's it's really important that people tie in literally and physically into places, right, and that they become a part of of a community and build all those relationships and all that. Yeah, it's a virtuous circle, and we need to have people entering it. You're right. Howard Husick, thank you so much for, for being on. Really enjoyed the discussion. Where can uh, people find more of your work? Well, my new book, The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It. We need all sides of town, but we can't ignore the poor side of town. We used to have ones that were really nice, and we tore them down. We should not do that anymore. We should build new ones, small homes on small lots. But The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It, available on Amazon and Counter Books. Uh, uh, Who Killed Civil Society, my previous book, also on on uh, Encounter. And uh, if you go to American Enterprise Institute and put in my name, Howard, H-U-S-O-C-K, you can find out all about me, probably more than I'll ever want you to know. <laughs> all right, Beth. So, sounds good. Thanks again. And uh, we'll make sure to put those up in the uh, podcast notes. Terrific. Asher, thanks just so much for having me on. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.